Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The January 6th committee demanding that Kevin McCarthy talks. The lead starts right now. A significant step with new subpoenas issued for House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and four other House Republicans. How this could test congressional authority well beyond this investigation. I'll speak to a member of the January 6th committee coming up. Plus, Putin's army pushed back. How much weight is the U.S. carrying in this war? Hear from the man who led the Pentagon during the Trump administration. And the front lines of inflation. Why American farmers warn food prices could soon skyrocket even more. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start with breaking news in our politics lead and a brand new subpoena for the House Republican leader issued by his colleagues investigating the deadly Capitol riot. This afternoon, the bipartisan January 6th House Select Committee took the extraordinary step of issuing subpoenas not only for Kevin McCarthy, but to four other Republican lawmakers, Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio, Mo Brooks of Alabama, Andy Biggs of Arizona, and Scott Perry of Pennsylvania. All five previously rejected the committee's invitations to voluntarily testify. So what information might these men be able to provide the committee? Well, in their original request, the panel told McCarthy they wanted to know more about his conversations with then-President Trump and others at the White House in the week after the attack on the Capitol. White House call records show Jim Jordan spoke to Trump on the morning of January 6th. But the committee also wants to know about Jordan's talks with Trump allies, who were stationed in a so-called war room at the Willard Hotel in the days before the riot. Mo Brooks caught the committee's attention after he revealed that Trump had repeatedly asked him to work to rescind the 2020 election and somehow magically remove Joe Biden from office. When the committee reached out to Andy Biggs earlier this month, they said they wanted to discuss his participation in planning meetings at the White House and, quote, various aspects of planning for January 6th. And text messages given to the committee by former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and obtained by CNN show Congressman Scott Perry was pushing to have the nation's top intelligence official investigate baseless conspiracy theories that the election was stolen from Trump. CNN's Jamie Gangel joins us now live with much more on this. And Jamie, I have to say, this is an extraordinary step for the committee to, to take to subpoena the House Minority Leader. Do we know if any of these men are anticipated to cooperate? We, we do not know, but we're getting some, you know, Kevin McCarthy told our colleague Melanie Zanona that the committee just wants to, quote, go after their political opponents. That doesn't sound like he wants to cooperate. Mo Brooks just told our Manu Raju that I believe it's wise to wait and consult among the five to determine whether it's best to present a united response. Look, that said, the committee, Jake, has laid down a marker. They knew 
that this was going to be, as one uh, source close to the committee's investigation said to me, a political tsunami. They debated it for months. But in the end, do they really think these people are going to comply? I don't think they're optimistic about it, but they felt they had to lay down the marker and do what was right for the investigation because each one of these members are firsthand fact witnesses to what Donald Trump was saying, thinking, and doing. Yeah, and we know now because of the New York Times reporters, uh, Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns, we, we have heard Kevin McCarthy saying he was going to recommend that Trump resign from office after the Capitol attack. Take a listen. Let's play that tape. The only discussion I would have with him is that I think this will pass, and it would be my recommendation we should resign. Do you think these recordings can can play a role in these investigations? I think the recordings will definitely play a role in the investigation, along with a lot of other videotape from January 6th, uh, videotape from witnesses behind closed doors in depositions. I, I spoke to a source close to the committee who said to me, why don't they just come in? The source said, if they have nothing to hide, why don't they come in and tell us what they know? So uh, this is going to have political fallout. They know there may be, if the Republicans take over the House uh, after the midterm elections, that there may be retaliatory tit for tat. It is unprecedented. Other than the House Ethics Committee, this has never happened before, Jake. But I think we have to remember that those recordings and other evidence the committee has will come out in the hearings whether or not these five members of Congress cooperate. All right, Jamie Gangel, thanks so much. Joining us now is a member of the January 6th Select Committee, Democratic Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren of California. Congresswoman, thanks for joining us. So this is a major step and a major change for the committee in trying to compel testimony from fellow members of Congress. Um, What are you hoping to learn from them? Well, as we outlined in our letter sent to each of the members, we have other information that we've gathered um, that leads us to believe they have information of various sorts. For example, uh, Mr. McCarthy speaking to the president. For example, Mr. Perry um, involved with uh, trying to install Jeffrey Clark as the AG and Mr. Jordan talking to the president and Mr. Biggs in the planning meetings and the like. Um, We had hoped that they would come in simply with the invitation um, and they have not done so. Uh, The committee didn't do this lightly. We we thought about it and talked about it for a long time, but we really think uh, we need them to come in. And so we have issued subpoenas and uh, you would think that they would want to uh, shed some light on what happened. I mean, we have a lot of evidence leading to a conclusion. Uh, what I just don't understand why they would not come in. Uh, and I hope that this little um, nudge uh, will further encourage them to come in and do the right thing. They have a legal obligation now to come in and talk to the committee. 
You've been, uh, the committee has been weighing this move for months. Why now? Uh, and are you hoping to question them as part of the upcoming public hearings? Well, perhaps. I mean, why now is it <clears throat> we've been waiting uh, for some time uh, to hear from them and they have, they're not, they have not voluntarily come in. As you know, we have set uh, dates in June for our public hearings and we want to lay out the evidence that we have compiled from a variety of sources uh, that in some cases uh, relate to these members of Congress. We'd like to hear from them. Um, and, you know, if they can come in and shed light on these things, it would be very helpful. And whether or not it would, you know, be just fact finding, uh, you know, we don't know because they have declined to do that so far. But I would expect now, since this is a legal obligation, that these members will finally come in and lay out what they know. Um, I do think it's important that the whole truth come out. And I just can't imagine what what they think, why they would, you know, what are they hiding? I, I just don't get that. Your fellow committee member, Congressman Jamie Raskin, says he thinks all five will ultimately comply with the subpoena. But what happens if they decide to just defy the subpoenas, uh, as uh, Meadows uh, has done in the... Step by step, uh, Jamie. Yeah. Well, step by so step. So the House I voted to... Ref- yeah. So the House voted to refer uh, you know, Meadows to the Justice Department for cont- for contempt of Congress. Uh, almost, uh, what was it? It was it was um, it, it was months ago, uh, right? Uh, almost five months ago for ignoring the the committee's subpoena. Um, they haven't acted on that. The Justice Department. Is there any reason to think that this situation would be different hypothetically? Well, let's not go to what we'll do if they don't live up to their legal obligation. I'm assuming that they will comply with their legal obligation. Uh, they all took an oath uh, to support and de- defend the Constitution. We all believe, I hope, in the rule of law, and I would expect that they will come in. If that doesn't happen, we have other options to discuss, but I think it's premature to get into that now. The committee says it wants to have a final report later this year, uh, is this it, or, or should we expect more subpoenas after these? Well, stay tuned. We'll see. Um, we haven't finished the investigation. Let me just leave it at that. Is the timeline being driven at all by concerns that Democrats are going to lose control of the House and the process? Kevin McCarthy as Speaker would kill this committee. Um, or is the timeline independent of that political possibility. It's independent of that. But let me put this into perspective. Every Congress is two years old, whether or not the majority uh, changes. And so each committee, each select committee is established for a given Congress, which is two years in length, whether or not. And I don't personally believe there is going to be a change in the minority. But we were given a mission to get this done in this Congress. It's interesting, although, uh, you know, we, the committee was approved in just a little less than a a month, a year ago. And of course, it took a little while to uh, staff up and and find typewriters and computers and office space. So we've worked very quickly and very hard. And we understand that, you know, this is, this Congress's committee, and we need to get it all done 
uh, in this uh, time frame. And if in a future Congress, in the next Congress, they want to you know, do this again, that will be up to that Congress. But we, we want to get this done uh, in this Congress. I'll bet it did take some time to find typewriters. Democratic Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren of California, <laughs> thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Coming up next, reports of yet another Russian ship on fire in the Black Sea. Has Ukraine struck again? Plus, the U.S. marks a tragic milestone. One million lives lost to COVID. As the White House is pressed to explain its alarming projections for a wave of COVID cases this fall and winter. Stay with us. In our world lead, Ukraine's military says a Russian supply ship is on fire in the vicinity of Snake Island and is currently being towed. The Ukrainians did not say how or why that Russian ship caught fire. Also today, new satellite photos show a Russian merchant ship loaded with stolen Ukrainian grain at a port in Syria. Ukrainians are accusing Russia of trying to sell the stolen grain on the black market. In Ukraine itself, fighting in the northeast is getting closer to the Russian border. Ukrainians say more border villages are coming under fire from both Russian artillery and airstrikes. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh reports as Russians fall back, the horrors of their invasion emerge for the world to witness. The quiet pines around the east of Kharkiv are slowly revealing their trauma. The Kremlin is being pushed back so fast we are only nine miles from their border. But being closer to the motherland that Russia absurdly claims it is offered no mercy to these civilians. As they liberate village after village, pushing the Russian forces back towards their own border, this is the sort of atrocity, frankly, that they keep coming across. This car hit by a tank shell as the convoy fled. The troops from the Kharkiv City Territorial Defence tell us the intensity of the fire, no match for the innocence of those on board. A 13-year-old girl and three adults killed by Russian troops here in early May, said Ukrainian officials. Are you saying that the concentration of bullets is on the driver's side and the passenger door behind, showing gunmen who knew what they were doing? Just up the road, two Russian corpses that lay here, now buried, but for days they sat with their prayer books and sleeping bags and grenades in the spring sun. Their aging armour derailed by a single rocket-propelled grenade, we're told. This fresh convoy fleeing the village of Rabizhne up the river further evidence Ukraine is pushing towards Russia's fragile supply lines from across the border. Up on the hill, a rare sight, a modern Russian T-90 tank. These drone images show its destruction. One of Russia's newest tanks kind of the pride, really, of this invading force. That's what's left of it. But the big concern here is they're hearing uh, a drone above us. And while we don't know if that's Ukrainian or Russian, we're going to keep moving. 
You could not be much closer to Russia here. Yet still, these tiny pine idols feel brutalized, trapped in an endless fight. Some of those who remain seem unaware of the details of their occupation and liberation. That does not mean they are unshaken. Disbelief here at Russian savagery from across the border, now eclipsed by how fast it has retreated back towards it. And Jake, that is the extraordinary thing. That village, Stary Saltiv, liberated, frankly, in the last few days. And to its north, we're learning today from Ukrainian officials, yet more territory, they say, taken back from the Russians. The area to the north and east of Kharkiv, increasingly absent of the previous occupying force, leaving us with this broader question. A matter of weeks ago, there was this talk about the reset of the Russian campaign, a second wave that would push uh, in from the east, possibly from the south. And frankly, we've seen very little of either. Ukrainian officials today suggesting, yes, there may have been some territory lost to the Russians in the sort of more central eastern parts. But up here to the north in Kharkiv, right near the Russian border, their forces have frankly collapsed back, almost back into Russia itself. That is startling. And it does leave you wondering, Jake, exactly what the strategic objectives that Moscow has, if any, that it can actually achieve are in the weeks ahead. All right, Nick Payton Walsh, thank you so much. I want to bring in Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin of Michigan. She's on the House Armed Services and Homeland Security Committee. She also worked at the CIA and was a Pentagon intelligence official. Congresswoman, today leaders of Finland are expressing support for their country joining NATO. Finland had been known for being politically neutral, which means Putin's own war is backfiring on him. Today, Russia said if Finland joins NATO, Russia will be forced to retaliate Should the international community be worried that Russia's aggression will soon move well beyond Ukraine? You know, I think we were watching that really closely right when the conflict started, when Russia came in with such a full thrust into Ukraine. But now they've been pushed back, as we just heard from your reporter. They've been pushed back so consistently and so shrunk their own goals that while I don't I don't I'm not surprised that Putin is saber rattling at the idea of new powerful NATO members um, I just don't think that we see them moving into position in a way that's that makes that threat credible I think it's a great thing that Finland and, and hopefully Sweden are going to be joining NATO um, Putin was absolutely counting on NATO breaking breaking sort of faith with each other and not being a strong entity and it's a perfect boomerang on him that we have new strong members in NATO at the end of this. There's been criticism of the U.S. intelligence uh, when it comes to Russia's war in Ukraine. Senator Angus King, independent of Maine, he pointed out in a, in a Senate hearing this week that some of, the faili- some of the failures of the U.S. intelligence community are pretty stark. Take a listen. When we were told explicitly Kiev would fall in three days and the, uh, Ukraine would, would fail, fall in two weeks, you're telling me that was accurate intelligence? So we were really focused on, on the Russian forces at the time. And so when we, when we backed and this up... We were up, wrong about that too, weren't we? We overestimated the Russians. Well, uh, this, of course, comes on the heels of intelligence failures as the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan. You worked at the CIA and at the Pentagon in intelligence. Do you 
have confidence in U.S. intelligence? What's going on here? Yeah, I have confidence in U.S. intelligence. And and I, I think, to be honest, I've heard a ton of Ukrainians say that they were surprised with, A, how poor the Russian military was, and then, B, how creative and passionate the Ukrainians were when combined with arms and assistance from the outside. So I, I don't think that you could have said, and I think we would have been crazy for U.S. intelligence to say, oh yeah, the Ukrainians are going to be fine in a war against the Russians. So I, I, look, I, I, it's a hard thing to do to be in the business of intelligence. Um, and the Russian military, just we figured out that between their Soviet doctrine, their inability to feed and fuel themselves, from a distance, um, and that that conscript army that just was not motivated, um, they were a failure, and I think um, no one would have predicted that. Just a few hours ago, the January 6th committee issued subpoenas to five House Republicans, including the House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Are you at all worried about the precedent this could set? Republicans could use subpoenas uh, in an act of retaliation if and when they regain control of the House? Well, look, I I can't say what others will do in retaliation. I can just say that I'm standing in a building that, you know, a year and a half ago was completely ransacked with people who were using violence and five people were killed. And there needs to be accountability for that. And we have knowledge that these folks were in frequent contact with the president and with the chief of staff before and during the actual event. So speak to that, right? And if you won't come and participate in the committee, then you're gonna be subpoenaed. And if you were just trying to calm things down, then you can exonerate yourself, you can say that. But I I think they're they're subpoenaed because they would not participate and they need to come forward and explain themselves. It's a huge, huge moment in American history what happened here and we need accountability. Congresswoman Slotkin of Michigan, thanks so much for your time today, appreciate it. Cite your sources. New questions after the Biden administration projects a staggering increase of COVID cases in the months to come, but does not provide the data to back that claim up. Stay with us. In our health lead, it's a horrific milestone that for many of us once seemed almost unthinkable. Today, the White House marked one million American deaths from COVID. One million. One million mothers and fathers grandparents, sons, daughters, brothers, and sisters lost to this awful pandemic. President Biden reflected on the tragedy today while also calling on Congress to pass more funding to fight the pandemic. This as doctors warn about a possible summer surge. While numbers are nowhere near as dire as they were with the Delta or original Omicron surges, COVID cases are trending up in almost every state in the U.S. and hospitalizations have been slowly increasing as well. Still lower than January's peak, but up in more than half the states. As CNN's Caitlin Collins reports for us now, this comes as a warning from the White House puzzles medical experts. President Biden marking the staggering number of Americans lost to COVID-19. One million COVID deaths, one million empty chairs around the family dinner table, each irreplaceable. The president lowering flags at federal buildings to half staff to commemorate the somber milestone and highlighting the global toll as he virtually hosted world leaders for another pandemic summit. Millions of children have been orphaned and with thousands still dying every day. Now is the time for us to act, all of us together. On Thursday, databases used by the CDC and CNN were just shy of one million U.S. deaths but expected to surpass that number soon. 
As other nations pledged billions to continue their fight against COVID-19, Biden called on Congress to authorize more funding so he could do the same. We have to invest now, now. We have to secure political commitments now. We have to start working to prevent the next variant and the next pandemic now. The White House has asked Congress for $22 billion for treatments and vaccines, but the proposal has languished on Capitol Hill amid disagreements over immigration. I continue to call on Congress here at home to take the urgent action to provide emergency COVID-19 funding that is vital to protect Americans. The president's top aides are warning there will be consequences if Congress fails to pass more funding soon, but they've baffled some experts by declining to say which models are behind their infection projections. We're looking at a range of models, both internal and external models, and what they're predicting is that if we don't get ahead of this thing, we're going to have a lot of waning immunity, this virus continues to evolve, and we may see a pretty sizable wave of infections, hospitalizations, and deaths this fall and winter. And Jake, we should note that again, the White House was asked today about those models. They still did not name exactly which ones the White House is basing its projections on. But back here in Washington, we should note that any moment now on Capitol Hill, you will see House Speaker Pelosi and other lawmakers hold a moment of silence to mark reaching one million American deaths from COVID-19. That comes, Jake, as Pelosi says they are still in negotiations about what that next COVID aid package is going to look like. We know it's been pared down to about $10 billion now, but it still remains to be seen when it gets passed or what it looks like in its final form, Jake. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House for us. Thanks so much. Chaotic days and illegal demands all spelled out in black and white. Defense Secretary under Trump, Mark Esper, will join us now next, revealing explosive moments where he says he had to push back on the demands of the former president. Stay with us. An explosive new memoir is giving a stunningly candid look at former President Donald Trump, detailing the many illegal actions Trump and his aides were suggesting to top military brass, such as shooting American protesters in the nation's capital or firing missiles on Mexican drug labs, withholding aid to Ukraine that Congress had already signed off on and on one occasion, suggesting the U.S. publicly brandish the bloodied head of ISIS leader al-Baghdadi as a trophy. All this in a new book, A Sacred Oath, Memoirs of a Secretary of Defense During Extraordinary Times, written by Trump's Defense Secretary Mark Esper. He served in that position from July 2019 until November 2020, only to be fired by a tweet six days after the presidential election. Secretary Esper joins us now. Secretary Esper, I want to ask you about those shocking claims in a moment, but first, some news of the day. Today, we found out that the House Select Committee investigating the insurrection is sending subpoenas to House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy for other House Republicans. What, what's your reaction? You know, Jake, as you mentioned, it's breaking news. I haven't had a chance to read up and find out what's going on. I, I do think it's important at the end of the day that the January 6th committee get to the bottom of what happened and understand it, uh, make sure there is accountability and figure out how we prevent this from happening again. It was a tragic day in our nation's history. We've learned in recent days that Kevin McCarthy was thinking about at one point or discussing uh, invoking the 25th Amendment that allows a president to be removed from office. He was doing this in the days after January 6th. He ultimately concluded it would take too long. There are tapes of him saying this. In your book, you say you never believed Trump's conduct rose to the level of needing to invoke the 25th Amendment when you were in the cabinet. But if you had been Secretary of Defense in the days after January 6th, 
And if it had come up for a vote, would you have voted to remove him from office? Boy, Jake, I, you know, I don't know. You have to be there in the moment to understand and assess the situation and have a chance to, you know, look at the president under fire in, in that moment. Uh, clearly what he did uh, was antithetical to what we believe in as a democracy, right? He undermined the election for weeks. He incited people to come to D.C., stirred them up that morning and then failed to call them off. And I in my view, that was undermining our democracy, the hallmark of which is a free and fair election and the peaceful transfer of power. So, uh, you know, I don't know where I would have stood, but I would have, you, you know, taken a serious look at it and I think come to the proper judgment. We've seen in recent months uh, the importance of Ukraine getting that military aid uh, that Donald Trump tried to hold up uh, initially uh, during uh, the actions that led to his first impeachment. In your book, you say you repeatedly warned uh, Donald Trump that withholding military aid to Ukraine uh, was not only illegal, but it would further weaken Zelensky's government. In hindsight, looking back on it, do you think Trump's resistance to helping Ukraine, uh, the way that he behaved towards Zelensky, do you think that emboldened Putin in any way uh, to, to, to act as aggressively as we're seeing today? Well, first things first, you know, it, it is true. I talk about this, that John Bolton, uh, the national security advisor, Mike Pompeo, the secretary of state, and I at various times uh, would engage individually or together uh, with the president and, and talk him into releasing this funding for a variety of reasons, right? Just first to bolster this democracy, to deter Russia, and then ultimately for me that it was the law, that the Congress had appropriated it. That said, uh, you know, I, I don't think it made a material difference. It was three years ago at this point. I do want to give the president credit. I think the administration did the right thing by providing lethal aid in the form of the javelins and then, of course, conducting training in western Ukraine, which I had the chance to visit. But I'm, I'm not sure three years later that, that it had an, a material impact on what's happening today. You write that Trump always had a soft spot for Putin. Why, why do you think that is? I don't know. He, he tended to have that same soft spot for other strongmen, whether it was Putin or Xi Jinping. And uh, I couldn't explain it. Uh, it is just what it was. And in some ways, I think, as I write with regard to our China policy, and, and by the way, I think that the administration was successful in consolidating an American consensus, if you will, that China is a strategic adversary. But in some ways, the president's willingness to engage Xi Jinping and treat him as a friend, in some ways, kind of undermined that. In your book, you say Trump and his aides were suggesting ideas such as shooting American protesters in the nation's capital using the military to stay in power, bombing America's neighbor surreptitiously in Mexico and having the U.S. commit a war crime by dipping al-Baghdadi's head in pig's blood. What do you say to critics who, who might say, you know, the time to share those stories was before the 2020 election uh, so that the American people could make an infirm, informed choice, not now when you're trying to sell books? Well, look, it's, it's a great question, and it's an issue I struggled with uh, through a good part of my tenure. I write about this in the opening pages of my book, you know, should I stay or should I go? And, you, you know, my view was at the end of the day, given that I, I had the chance to continue to advancing good initiatives in, at the Pentagon, right? Building our cyber capabilities, proposing a new Navy, modernizing the armed forces, building trust with allies and partners. Between that and the fact that I was able successfully over a period of months to push back on these outlandish ideas, 
I thought that my higher sense of duty was to the was to the country to stay and not to leave. Because look, it would have saved me a lot of grief and heartache to walk away. But I just didn't think that would put the country in the right position. And I consulted folks like uh, my predecessors from both parties, uh, even the late General Colin Powell. And to a person, they said, look, you need to stay. And that became my goal is get to the election, prevent bad stuff from happening and continue to try and advance a positive agenda within the Pentagon. And you, you say in the book that you never publicly uh, rebuked Trump while you were defense secretary because you thought he would he would take the opportunity to fire you and you never resigned because, as you just noted, you worried Trump would replace you uh, with a loyalist, somebody who would carry out any order. Um, you, but you do also write about how, in, at least in one instance, Trump's loyalists uh, would work around you in ways. Um, Stephen Miller, for example, uh, directed the Department of Homeland Security to develop a concept to deploy a couple hundred thousand plus U.S. troops to the border, even after you told him that was not possible. You write, quote, I was shocked. I asked questions no one had good answers for. Who approved this? When did this begin? Why weren't we informed? How far along were they? While I was not surprised Miller was working this, I was frustrated that no one senior at Northcom thought to let us or anyone at the Pentagon, for that matter, know. It's really quite a shocking revelation. How often do you think things like that were going on that you didn't catch until uh, towards the very end? Well, there were things like that that happened and it picked up more toward Things like that that happened picked up more toward the end of the administration. But, you know, first things first, you, you mentioned publicly rebuking him. Of course, I did. Right on June 3rd, I came out and publicly spoke about invocation of the Insurrection Act. I, I had to speak out in January 2020 when he proposed bombing Iranian cultural and historic sites. And I had to say, no, that's not wrong. We don't the U.S. military doesn't do that. Going back to the, you know, Eddie Gallagher episode in, in the fall of 2019, I spoke up and said that I had hoped that the president would allow the military process to work its way through. Uh, so there were times I had to do that. But near the end, after June, for example, I was trying not to get in, uh, you know, crosswise with the president because uh, I, there was so much going on. And so these outlandish ideas kept coming forward that I wanted to make sure I didn't get fired too soon. I wanted to be there uh, to, to act in what I thought was the best interest of the country. So I had to be on guard, as did you know General Milley and others within the Pentagon, to make sure folks weren't going around us to, to do this or that. And, and I talk about some of those things in the book. I know you said that uh, you, you'll never vote for Donald Trump again uh, and you don't think he should be president again. Would you uh, work for a Republican, uh, endorse a Republican in a primary to defeat Donald Trump if it comes to that? Sure. If it's somebody that I believed in, that somebody is promoting, you know, traditional uh, Republican policies like in, uh, lower taxes, a strong defense, of course, border security, things like that. They have to be a person of integrity and principle. And look, they have to put country above self and, and try and unify the country and not be divisive. So if somebody meets criteria like that, absolutely, I'd, I'd support them in the primary. Former Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, thank you. His new book, A Sacred Oath, is out now. And Secretary Esper, we'll have you back. We've got a lot more, lot more questions for you, and these issues keep continuing. Thank you so much for being with us. Get ready for even more higher prices. The warning from the heartland about America's food supply. Stay with us. In our Money Lead Now, a new warning from farmers across the United States about the myriad problems driving up food prices. As CNN's Gabe Cohen reports, prices could still get even higher. It's going to be tough. Just six weeks from winter wheat harvest, Brian Brooks is staring down 4,000 acres of barren Colorado farmland. 
dried out by a brutal drought that could drive food prices even higher. There's nothing you can salvage here? Oh, no, we're done. I mean, you walk through here and it's so frustrating to see all your hard work is sitting here blown away. Now it's time to plant corn. Would it even grow? No, we'd just be wasting our, our money. A severe drought from Kansas to California has put 71 million crop acres at risk, 22% of the nation's crops. Farms are rationing water, some destroying crops that they know won't survive. In the Midwest, it's the opposite. Farms are soaked and planting is weeks behind. It's just one more strain on farmers with costs skyrocketing for labor, fuel, seed and fertilizer. We're planning less to try to survive to live another year. Mark Arnish, like many, is switching crops and planting half as many acres. Consumers without a question are going to feel the pinch at the grocery store. U.S. food prices keep climbing, up 9.4 percent from a year ago and expected to rise at least 5 to 6 percent this year. The war in Ukraine is adding to it, sending global prices sky high and creating a hunger crisis with Ukraine and Russia's grain industries largely cut off. We're reducing the red tape. On Wednesday, the Biden administration announced new measures to help U.S. farmers, doubling funding for fertilizer production and expanding access to double cropping insurance and technologies that reduce the need for fertilizer. We can make sure that American agriculture exports will make up for the gap in Ukrainian supplies. But a new USDA report is projecting less supply and higher prices in the U.S. on grains like wheat and corn. And there's growing concern crop problems could add more stress to the food supply chain. Those drought impacts are going to result in in less food being on the market, which is going to further put pressure on food prices on top of some of the inflationary pressures we've already been seeing. At City Bakery in Denver, Michael Bortz has already seen his cost of flour nearly double. I lose a lot of sleep for it. He's hiked his prices 20 percent to cover it. If wheat prices keep rising, will you have to raise your prices? Yes. I mean, there's no way around that. A problem that could grow from this desolate dirt where nothing else will. So just pray for rain. Now, Jake, we may not see price hikes from the drought for some time. And remember, crop prices are just one small piece of what you pay for food. But experts, they hope food inflation will ease in the months ahead, though now they're warning this could push the clock back. Jake. All right, Gabe Cohen, great report. Thank you so much. Coming up, a CNN investigation linking specific attacks in Ukraine and the Russian general likely behind the orders to strike. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, homes burned to the ground in one of California's wealthiest neighborhoods in just, neighborhoods in just a matter of minutes inside the fire that took even meteorologists and scientists by surprise. Plus, new warnings about a deadly and mysterious hepatitis outbreak among children across the U.S. CNN talks to the parents whose child just underwent a liver transplant. And leading this hour, Russia making new threats following the announcement that Finland is one step closer to joining NATO. The prime minister and president of that country that shares an 800-mile border with Russia said today they support joining the alliance. CNN's Melissa Bell joins us now live from Kiev. And Melissa, the the chief of NATO, says Finland would be, quote, warmly welcomed into NATO if Finland were to apply for membership. Isn't this the exact opposite of what Putin wants? I mean, isn't he achieving the opposite of all his goals? 
Uh, precisely. And what's going to happen is expected to go pretty quickly, Jake, since we heard from the Finnish president and the Finnish prime minister today saying that they want now Finland to join NATO officially. The formal request will come on Sunday. The vote will go through parliament next week, no doubt. And what we expect, according to Jens Stoltenberg, the head of NATO, is that the process should go fairly quickly after that. And so you're right. Vladimir Putin finds himself uh, having said that he was going into NATO to prevent that eastward expansion of NATO with a border with NATO that is now twice as long or will be twice as long as it was before all this began. As the Finnish president said today, if he wants to figure out exactly how he came to this, he really just has to look in the mirror. Now, the Finns describe this as responding to a sentiment that comes from their people. Before this began, just over three months ago, the Finnish population believed about 20 or 25 percent of them were for NATO membership. That figure is now 76 percent, less than three months later, as a direct result of the Finns believing that their national security, given what's happened here in Ukraine, now depends on joining NATO. And a Ukrainian official says the situation along the Luhansk front lines in the Donbass region of Ukraine is, quote, significantly deteriorated. Are the Ukrainians making gains anywhere? Uh, they are, Jake. And I think that's one of the things that we've seen at the beginning of this week is a turning point that's been reached in this war. That is certainly the feeling of President Zelensky. What's been happening is that because Russian forces have been retreating uh, to their uh, positions in Donetsk and Luhansk, trying to expand what was their stronghold before all this began just over three months ago, they've diverted their resources back there. They've brought them back to try and focus on making gains uh, from that area because they've been on the back foot and trying to strengthen those strongholds. And because of that, uh, up in the north of the country, around Kharkiv, we've seen Ukrainian forces make advances, take several towns towards the Russian border, with the first Russian civilian dying today as a result of cross-border shelling. That is a significant change in the balance of power. Now, even as Russian forces find themselves unable to make those southward advances that they didn't hope to, in fact, making losses up in the north, that front line now, along a good stretch of river, uh, north, uh, east of uh, Luhansk, north of Donetsk, is where uh, the forces face each other off, with the Russians trying to cross the river. They've managed to do so at one point. They're being held back in another, where Ukrainians have repeatedly been uh, blown up their pontoons. Uh, and it is that static nature of the front line that means that they really are kind of stuck. Now, the question is how Vladimir Putin now responds with his forces really at a standstill in much of Ukraine. And again, politically, such a huge uh, loss with Finland now joining NATO. What is his response to that at this stage, Jake? Melissa Bell reporting live for us from Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you. The world has watched in horror, as Russian artillery has devastated Ukrainian cities and Ukrainian lives, seemingly with impunity, the United States and the international community have accused Russia of committing war crimes in Ukraine. But what's been difficult is tying specific generals to specific crimes, which is the key to actually carrying out war crimes prosecutions. In Kharkiv, CNN has seen the aftermath of attacks targeting civilians using indiscriminate cluster munitions. That's a war crime. In a two-month-long investigation, CNN can now reveal the commander responsible for these attacks and the string of atrocities he's committed not just in Russia's latest war in Ukraine, but also in the 2014 war in Dobas and in Syria. Chief International Investigative Correspondent Nima Albagar has this exclusive report for you now. And a warning, you might find some of the images in this report disturbing. A devastation of civilian homes and lives. 
Throughout the last few months, we have witnessed atrocities in Ukraine. More mortar strikes very, very close. They want us to start moving. While we know these are Russian actions, it's been difficult to draw a direct line from individual atrocities to a specific Russian commander. Until now. CNN can exclusively reveal that this man, Colonel General Alexander Zhiravlov, commander of the Western Military District, is the commander responsible for this. Munitions targeting civilians in the city of Kharkiv, East Ukraine. A war crime under international law. You can see more artillery rockets apparently be firing from Russian territory towards the territory, I would say, around Kharkiv. I don't know if you can hear this right now. This is the start of the war. CNN's senior international correspondent, Fred Pleitkin, witnessed artillery being fired from inside Russia, within Zhiravlov's district, towards the city of Kharkiv. Sam Kiley was in Kharkiv and could hear the shelling moments later. Could feel the concussion against the glass. We soon learned from experts these were smart rockets. This is what they're capable of delivering. Cluster bombs. One smudge rocket releasing many smaller explosives, scattering bombs, amplifying the devastation. These attacks, captured on social media both in Kharkiv and both from the same day, are a clear example of their indiscriminate nature. When used in this fashion against civilians, it's considered a war crime. The use of smudge rockets are key in our findings of who is responsible, because they are unique to one unit here, one commander. After months of forensic work, we can reveal the trail of evidence leading to Zhiravlov. Using social media videos to guide us, we return to some of the scenes of the attacks, focusing on February 27th, when three civilian targets were hit and eight more on February 28th. We start in the Pavlova Pola neighborhood of Kharkiv. This is shrapnel from those missiles that fell on our neighborhood, Lilia tells us. This shrapnel was found in one of the rooms. Lilia takes us to see a smudge rocket that fell 200 yards from her apartment block in this once affluent area. I remember the whistling sound of the missiles. I know that the missiles were flying and that they were accompanied by fighter planes or drones. You can see the hole that it came through. You can see the way that the rocket buckled when it hit the car. You can also very clearly see that this is a smudge. It's not the only rocket coming from this direction on this day. Less than a half mile down the road, another hit. Helping to situate us, this kiosk, that water cooler, they're key landmarks. The bodies landed here down this road. Those blue doors you see, that's where the cluster munition shrapnel embedded. This video filmed moments after the attack where four people, including a child, were killed. Another smudge launching cluster bombs. We know this because one of the unexploded bombs was found only 280 yards away. Notice the date, 2019. Russia stopped selling arms to Ukraine in 2014. This confirms this is a Russian cluster bomb. One and a half miles away, another strike, more suffering, and no sign of any legitimate military targets. People were queuing for food, and then something just hit. People started running here, she says. 
This is the exact moment of impact. Look at it again, frame by frame, you can see the scale of the rocket and proximity to innocent civilians. We are here in Kharkiv. Notice the five hits along this line from the 28th. They're pretty much in a line, apart from three here, which line up with the hits from February 27th. We can trace these lines 24 miles to a point of convergence here, across the border in Russia, well within the range of a smudge rocket, where we have a satellite image from the 27th showing the launching position. Notice the plume of smoke and the telltale burn marks of a smudge launch here, here and here. In collaboration with the Center for Information Resilience, we can also tell you who is firing from this position. The 79th Russian Artillery Brigade, part of the Western Military District, which borders Ukraine and is under the command of Zhiravlov. According to open source information reviewed by CNN, military experts and intelligence sources, they are the only unit in this district equipped to launch smirch rockets. And only the commander has the authority to order the 79th Artillery Brigade to launch the rockets. One expert told CNN, Smudge is a district-level asset. There are very few of them in the Russian armed forces, and therefore they're dedicated to special missions at the order of a military district commander. Colonel General Zhiravlov is this commander, and he's no stranger to these brutal tactics, atrocities targeting civilians. They're very similar to what we saw in Syria in 2016. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that Zhiravlov also led Russian troops during the siege of Aleppo. He is the architect of the devastation you see here. For leveling Aleppo, he was awarded the highest honor granted to Russian officers, hero of the Russian Federation. Yet Syrians have documented his war crimes. Despite the direct line from the impunity the world afforded Russia in Syria to the atrocities suffered by civilians here today, the question remains, what will the world do to stop this cycle? We reached out to the Russian Ministry of Defense and we haven't received comment, Jake, but noting the lack of inaction, the lack of action by the U.S. against Zhiravlov and other key Russian generals, we also asked them for comment. They said they can't comment on specifics, but that they continue to track and assess uh, reports of war crimes and other reports of ongoing violence. It still doesn't quite answer the question whether if more had been done sooner to hold Zhiravlov and others like him accountable, would we be seeing what we are seeing now in Ukraine today, Jake? Yeah, Al Bagger, incredible report. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. The January 6th committee just sent subpoenas to the several Republican lawmakers, including the top Republican in the House, Kevin McCarthy. Lawmakers react to the news. That's next. Breaking news, the House Select Committee investigating the deadly Capitol attack of January 6th has subpoenaed House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, along with four of his Republican colleagues, who have rejected the panel's requests to voluntarily cooperate. In addition to McCarthy, the panel is subpoenaing Representatives Jim Jordan of Ohio, Mo Brooks of Alabama, Andy Biggs of Arizona, and Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, all of whom 
have been outspoken supporters of former President Trump and his baseless, fact-free lies about the 2020 election. CNN's Ryan Nobles is live for us on Capitol Hill now. And Ryan, you've spoken with several members of the bipartisan January 6th panel. Uh, What are they telling you about this extraordinary step to subpoena the House Minority Leader? Well, Jake, there's no doubt that this is a decision that the committee wrestled with for a significant period of time, not really knowing if subpoenaing their fellow members was a step that they wanted to take. But what became clear today after talking to several of them is that they just believe that this investigation is in a place where there's information that they need that can only come from these Republican members. This is what Pete Aguilar from California told me earlier today. Clearly, these individuals, uh, and I'm happy to go by you know, each one individually, uh, know things that happened uh, on January 6th and the events that preceded January 6th. We feel they have an obligation if, if, uh, uh, to tell the truth um, and to help us uh, move forward and heal. Uh, we can only do that if we have the truth. As an example, Jake, they repeatedly pointed to that phone call that Kevin McCarthy had with Donald Trump on January 6th. They want to know what that phone call was all about. Also, Jim Jordan had potentially multiple phone calls with Trump on that day. And they're also hinting that there is some information that they've discovered in their investigation that's connected to these members that hasn't been brought out into the public. As a result, Jake, they believe these conversations are necessary. The question still remains, will they actually happen? Yeah, and, and if they won't testify, why not? What are, what are they hiding? Um, some of the people who have been subpoenaed are already speaking out. What, what are they saying about the likelihood uh, they'll comply and share what they know? Yeah, Jake, to your point, uh, many of these Republican members have been uh, very much opposed to any of the actions of the January 6th Select Committee. They've turned down any opportunity to cooperate, even under voluntary conditions. And so far, uh, Mo Brooks uh, put out a statement today saying, quote, the partisan witch hunt committee, which he said Pelosi Republicans don't count, talking about the two Republican members on the committee, have yet to personally serve me with a subpoena. He said he'll be in a better position to respond to its purported contents if and when actual service happens. So far, none of these Republicans have outright said they're going to not comply with the subpoenas. But in Brooks' statement, he puts a list of conditions of which he may consider complying with the subpoena, one of which is testifying publicly at one of these upcoming hearings. Now, Chairman Thompson didn't outright reject the idea of some of these members testifying publicly, but he said it would come after a private deposition. I also talked to Jamie Raskin uh, from the January 6th Select Committee about public testimony, and he said that they're done negotiating at this point, that this isn't a game. It's not Parcheesi or Checkers, he said, that they've issued these subpoenas and it's time for these members to comply. Again, Jake, the question is, will they? And if they don't, what enforcement mechanism will the committee use to try and get them to participate? Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill for us. Thanks so much. Coming up, kids hospitalized and even dying from a mysterious hepatitis outbreak. CNN talks to a family whose two-year-old daughter just had to undergo a liver transplant due to this illness. Stay with us. A non-COVID story in our health lead today. The CDC is investigating more than 100 cases of severe hepatitis In children in the United States, doctors right now are not exactly sure what is causing this outbreak, but symptoms are ranging from a common cold to a stomach bug and even severe liver inflammation. CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta spoke to one family whose case is currently being investigated. What is this? Can I take it? The first thing Kelsey Schwab wanted to show me was that her two-year-old daughter, Balin, 
had always been fiercely independent. Balin is Balin. She just kind of toots to her own drum and does her own thing. But on April 29th, everything changed, and a true medical mystery began. We woke up, and she had hives all over her body. So I took her to the doctor, and they did give her epinephrine and then sent us over to the ER to be monitored. Everything was fine. She went home. The next day, we woke up, and I was like, her eyes look a little bit yellow. She wasn't acting any different. No. And um, her eyes were just a little bit yellow. It was just a little bit of jaundice. A couple hours later, we got a call back saying, you need to get to the hospital now, and they're going to fly you there. Over the next couple of days, Balin's numbers didn't improve. Normal liver numbers are in 30s. I think at one point it was 7,000. Dr. Heli Bott is a pediatric hepatologist. That's a doctor who specializes in the liver. She was one of the first doctors to treat Balin after she was airlifted to the University of Minnesota's Masonic Children's Hospital. In your career, have you seen something like this before? No. I think I have definitely seen multiple cases of acute hepatitis and acute liver failure. But the fact that there are so many in such less time, I have not seen an outbreak like this in my career. What happened to Balin is extremely rare. But at least 109 times over the past few months, it's been the same story. A relatively healthy child whose eyes start to turn yellow, loses their appetite, and within days, their livers severely inflamed. According to the CDC, at least 98 children in this hepatitis outbreak had been hospitalized. 15 had liver transplants. Five have died. And there is no clear explanation why. What is striking about this is the number of cases in the period of time and kind of all over the world, and also following this huge pandemic. Do you draw a connection then between the pandemic and what is happening with these kids' hepatitis? One of the things that I question is, is, did these kids ever have COVID, you know? Uh, Kids can go asymptomatic with COVID, but then have all these inflammatory side effects. Should that be part of the diagnostic testing? Should these kids be getting tested for their antibodies to COVID? I do think that is something we should be testing so that we can, we can know whether it is related to that or not. Balin did have COVID, but for many others, we don't know. For now, the CDC isn't currently recommending testing for COVID antibodies in these children, and instead focusing on adenovirus, a virus that is usually linked to the common cold and more than half the children have tested positive for. Dr. Bott, isn't so sure, because while Balin did test positive for adenovirus in her blood, there wasn't any evidence of it in her liver. So this is adenoviral staining. This is a control, and this is Balin's liver, so it did not stain at all. But you weren't seeing it in her liver. In the liver, yeah. Her muscles, like she would start shaking and she would, you know, had a hard time sitting up and like she couldn't hold her head up and just like watching her go through that was like, this is not my kid. Even though her doctors struggled to understand how this all happened, it was clear what needed to be done to save her, a transplant. And within two weeks of Balin first breaking out in hives, remarkably, she had a donor, a 16-year-old who was a match. My happiest day is their saddest day, and that's been one of the biggest struggles for us, I guess, is trying to come to terms with, like, tragedy is going to happen, whether we need the liver or not. Simply fitting the lobes from a 16-year-old's liver into Balin was a challenge. But the seven-hour operation a success. How quickly did her numbers after the transplant return to normal? Does it happen immediately? Yeah, it happens within days. So within hours to days. How is Balin doing now? She's playing with Play-Doh and um, starting to talk a little bit more and she's asking for food and asking for juice. So we're slowly getting back to Balin, but 
I'm not very patient. So, Jake, it, it's, it's still a mystery. I mean, we don't know the exact cause here. There's some things that they can rule out. For example, the COVID vaccine. I mean, the median age of these children is two. Vaccine's not available to them, and a vaccine wasn't available to moms even when they were pregnant with the children who are now getting the, these strange cases of hepatitis. And, Jake, it's also something that we're seeing around the world. I mean, there's been some 450 cases now all over the world. Again, no known cause. Common hepatitis viruses don't seem to be what's causing this, so they're still investigating. Mm. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much. A new and last-minute twist in the Pennsylvania Senate primary race for the Republican Party that could really put Donald Trump's influence to the test. Stay with us. In our politics lead, primary season has former President Trump feeling nervous. That's according to a Trump advisor who tells CNN that the competitive Pennsylvania Senate primary race might be shaking out quite differently than Donald Trump had planned. This after a new Fox News poll shows Republican candidate Kathy Barnett rising to a statistical tie with the two other main Republican contenders, TV personality Dr. Mehmet Oz, whom Trump has endorsed, and hedge fund manager David McCormick. The Trump advisor says, quote, for the past five months, he's been told the only threat to Oz is named David McCormick. This is a twist no one saw coming. Let's discuss. Uh, let me start with a former Republican Congressman Charlie Dent. Um, Congressman Kathy Barnett, uh, this third candidate who is rising in the polls, she has refused to answer basic questions about her biography and her discharge from the military. She's tweeted some truly insane things about Muslims and about gays. How worried are your fellow Pennsylvania Republicans that she's actually going to get the nomination, thus likely securing a Democratic win in the general election? Oh, I, I think it's safe to say that Pennsylvania Republicans are in full panic mode, uh, not just on her, her situation. I mean, again, you just mentioned that uh, there, she's just a, an opposition research uh, document dump just waiting to happen. That's the first problem. And then, of course, she and the gubernatorial candidate, Doug Mastriano, they've endorsed each other and they are both leading. So this is a double nightmare, nightmare scenario uh, for Pennsylvania Republicans. Both of those candidates are perceived as ones, you know, who could easily blow the races uh, for statewide and, and what otherwise would be a good year. Even worse, down ballot races are very important, too. And, uh, you know, there will be a lot of independents and Republicans who will be pulling for the Democrats for governor and Senate if those two are nominated. And that will affect down ballot Republicans. In a, and again, in a year that Republicans should be cleaning up. So and this is, has to be a nightmare for Mitch McConnell, too. There's no other way around it. Nia Malika Henderson, another Trump ally, tells CNN that the strategy shift is tough coming so late in the race. Quote, you can go negative on her, but you only have a week to introduce her in a negative way. And I don't think there's much from a conservative perspective. I haven't heard of anything where I've thought, oh, yes, this will be very effective, unquote. This afternoon, Donald Trump issued a statement saying that she, Barnett, will never be able to win the general election, unquote. 
Um, is that going to be enough? Well, listen, people said the same thing about Donald Trump, that he was unelectable and could never uh, win a general election. And guess what? Uh, he won a general election. So if you're Kathy Barnett, uh, you could sort of turn that around and, and use that logic as well. I think anytime campaigns start to sound like political strategies, a uh, strategist, that's not uh, a winning strategy. If you think about primary campaigns, voters actually vote much more with their hearts than their heads. And if you listen to the folks who are liking Kathy Barnett's uh, a campaign and candidacy so far, they do talk about feeling that she's authentic, that she's one of them. Uh, they like her story uh, as much as they know about her story, right? Uh, she was born in Alabama. She was uh, the product of a rape uh, when her mother was 11 years old and has some powerful things to say uh, that particularly pro-life voters very much like. I think the second part of Donald Trump's statement uh, talking about her not being vetted, I think that probably is some potential uh, way that you can eat into some of her uh, popularity so far. But again, they don't have much time. It's Thursday. Folks have already started to vote. Obviously, you know, the polls close on Tuesday. So we'll see uh, if they're going to be effective enough at arresting her momentum. But you want to be where she is if you're in this race. The race is closing and she is the one with the momentum right now. 100%. Charlie Dent, uh, Congressman Dent, last night, Dr. Oz went on Fox uh, to talk about her. Take a listen. She is a mystery person. We don't know much about her. We have to be able to learn, and she's not willing to share. So it raises additional red flags when every day, every hour of every day, since she uh, came on the radar screen, I've been finding out things that are very alarming to me. And it will be fodder for the Democrats. This is our seat to lose, folks. But we don't want to throw this away with a candidate who's not well vetted. Is that effective? Well, I don't know how effective it is, but I think Oz is actually right. She is unvetted. What we know about her is she ran for Congress in 2020 and she lost by 19 points, still hasn't conceded that race. You know, is also complaining about the 2020 presidential election. Uh, You know, again, has aligned herself uh, with very extreme fringe elements, uh, you know, who are, you know, again, I, I think unelectable. And I think Oz is correct that we simply don't know a whole lot about her. And that is the fear. You know, maybe there's nothing there, but there is this great fear that there is a lot of opposition research out there that we are going to learn about after the primary, should she win the nomination. And as I said, this is a double problem. When these Democrats, when, when the, you know, between her and Mastriano, um, you know, Republicans are, are, could blow a, a, what is a, you know, a, a rare opportunity to win two seats like this. I mean, there's, there, and by, by the yeah. way, more news today, Jake, the uh, pro tem of the Senate uh, Jake Corman just announced that, you know, he's backing Barletta for governor to stop Mastriano. I mean, this whole race, the, the state committee of the Republican State Committee of Pennsylvania really didn't do anything to direct voters in this race. They didn't endorse anybody. I mean, that's the whole point of a, a state committee is to do things like that. But there's been no leadership uh, from much of the, uh, the Republican establishment to try to direct this thing. And so now we have two guys who spent in, in the Senate race, spent all this money just, you know, ripping the bark off each other. Yeah. And now it appears that uh, Kathy Barnett's coming up the middle. And there's no time. And, to and Neil, like, uh, uh, don't have enough money. Yeah. Enough of the time. Neil, like, Sean, Sean Hannity zeroed in on some of her old tweets. They're all out there. It's not really opposition research. Uh, here are a few he highlighted. In 2016, quote, don't we get it? Obama is a Muslim. 2015. Did you see the last presidential debate? Trump 2016 was a horrid Hannity also uh, highlighted this homophobic tweet from 2013. Please pray for my babies and me. 
We're about to board the, pla- the plane to California, and there's a homosexual female. Hannity obviously brought these tweets up because he's endorsed Dr. Oz. He supports Oz. He wants to make a case to Republican voters that she's a bad candidate. Kind of an interesting moment, though. It is an interesting moment. I mean, when I first read these tweets, I said, hmm, kind of sort of fits in with uh, the language of Donald Trump, the language of Fox News, of uh, the language of a lot of Republican primary uh, voters. So I didn't necessarily think uh, they would hurt her. So we'll see what she's able to do. Some folks are pointing out that she also has backed uh, racial justice initiatives. Uh, that might hurt her among Republican uh, primary voters, but they've got such a hot contest on their hands. And probably regretting in some ways that Donald Trump has involved himself in this at all. Thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. This is what happens when you mix a mega drought with wind and fire. Million dollar homes burning to the ground in a fire that is surprising even scientists. Stay with us. Now to our Earth Matters series, this video capturing the flames destroying 20 homes in one of Orange County, California's wealthiest neighborhoods. CNN's Nick Watt takes a look now at how routine wildfires are now turning disastrous in a matter of hours. Multi-million dollar mansions eaten up by fast-moving flames. This is one of California's most affluent neighborhoods. I feel like it's the end of the world, honestly. And I just hope we can all get through this. Nearly 900 homes, as well as a luxury golf resort, evacuated. Firefighters dousing homes in the hope of saving them, some using water pulled from the country club pond. One firefighter injured. We have a fresh group going out today. They're going to be out there for 24 hours. This is no backcountry fire. This is near the beach in densely populated Orange County, just south of L.A. Damage assessment already underway in the ashes. Winds are gusty, pushing the flames, but the winds aren't terrible or unusual. It's the acres of bone-dry brush that's the major problem. With the climate change, the fuels beds in this county throughout Southern California, throughout the West, are so dry that, you know, fire like this is going to be more commonplace. The fast-moving fire seared through that dry brush ballooned to roughly 200 football fields in just a few terrifying hours. January, just 1% of this state was in extreme drought. Today, it's 60%. The January-April 2022 period was the driest on record for California, so says the U.S. Drought Monitor. This fire is not controlled or contained yet. We still have a lot of work to do. It's very steep terrain out there. We're going to get a little more heat, nothing significant. We are going to get those west winds again. This fire broke out yesterday afternoon. The cause, the spark, as yet unknown. So this is basically how this fire happened. The winds whipped in off the Pacific, across that golf course, through this canyon, pushing flames through the ridiculously dry brush up the hillside, threatening these ridgetop ocean view homes, destroying many of them, a few of them, including this, a $10 million home. Back to you, Jake. Nick Watt, thanks so much. Turning now to an extraordinarily lame excuse from golfer Greg Norman in our sports lead. Greg was trying to, uh, Greg Norman was trying to uh, con- explain his continued ties with Saudi Arabia. In an interview promoting his team-based golf league, which is backed by the Saudis, Norman brushed aside questions about lending his prestige to a country whose 
uh, leadership, particularly Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman or, or MBS, is blamed for the 2018 murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. Norman said, quote, we've all made mistakes. Generally, we've all made mistakes. It's the kind of thing one says about a teenager who has been caught shoplifting, not about a brutal dictator who ordered armed thugs to murder a newspaper columnist and cut up his body with a bone saw. But I suppose if there is money to be made in that brutal dictator's land, exceptions might be made by people like Mr. Norman. We'll be right back. The United States is marking a grim milestone. One million American lives lost to COVID, each victim leaving behind a story and a scar felt in their families, in their communities, and across the country. These are just some of the stories. She made a point to make sure to make friends to everybody. You are my sunshine, and I love you, lovingly drawn in red and blue crayon. These are some of the last drawings by 10-year-old Teresa Sperry. Last fall, she came home from elementary school with a headache. We thought it was just a simple headache. She passed away just a few days later, just weeks before children her age became eligible for the vaccine. My baby was happy. She was healthy and strong. And it took her in less than five days. If it can take her, it can take anybody. 39-year-old Naomi Esquivel died on July 2nd, 2020. At her funeral, her husband of 24 years, Carlos Garcia, said goodbye with their two sons, 14-year-old Isaiah and 11-year-old Nathan. Less than a month later, the boys were attending their father's funeral. I didn't get to say goodbye to my mom or my dad, no. And that's what hurts me the most. The boy's uncle and aunt took them in. Jonathan Coella, a cancer survivor, was just 32 years old. His wife Katie found a goodbye note he had written on his phone to her and their children shortly before he passed away. And they'll only ever know their dad through pictures and memories and videos and this note. Um, and to me, I feel like that's the worst part of this is that they won't feel the love that I felt for the past 10 years. Mary Schneider, 91, and her husband George, 88, had been married for 63 years. They passed away within three days of each other. They loved the Phillies and attending orchestra concerts. Ben Luderer was a coach and teacher. He was just 30 years old. He was discharged from the hospital after receiving oxygen for his initial symptoms. A few nights later, while isolating at home, he texted his wife. He said, you know, I'm struggling. Like, this is, this is hard. He finally settled in after taking his bath. The humidifier was on, and he was ready to, like, try the night, you know, go to sleep, you know. So I came back out to the couch, and I could hear through the door that he was still breathing, and I fell asleep. And then, you know, when I woke up that morning, he, he wasn't with us anymore. Hadwick Thompson was the uncle of lead producer Blake Jones. Hadwick served in the U.S. Marines during the Vietnam War and was awarded a Purple Heart. For the next 16 years, he was an Oakland police officer. In his free time, he loved windsurfing and sailing on the San Francisco Bay and riding his motorcycle. Barbara Birchneff was a nurse for 46 years who was just days away from retirement when she was admitted to the same hospital where she cared for patients. Happy birthday to you. 82-year-old Sarah Washington loved singing and playing music, serving as a high school choir director for 25 years. This Little Light of Mine was one of her favorite songs. For Joan Bartlett, the smell of her 84-year-old father's aftershave still brings her comfort. 
Her dad, John Richardson, was a math teacher and special ed coordinator for more than 20 years. I want the world to remember my dad, just the contribution that he made, raising a beautiful family and having a strong work ethic and a good human being and a person that cared for others. Robert Bobby Grimaldi passed away this past February from complications due to COVID. His daughter, Angelica, the senior editorial producer for our show, says he made friends everywhere he went. Florida siblings Byron and Michaela Hicks traveled to Orlando right before they got COVID in June 2020 and passed away just days apart. Byron was a gamer. He loved his game. He loved his family. Kayla was, was the light of the family. Her smile could light up a room. Miguel Moran was an immigrant from El Salvador. He washed trucks for a living. His 23-year-old son Daniel prayed at his hospital bedside wearing protective gear and a face mask. A final farewell to his father dying of COVID. 16 days later, Daniel had a fever and trouble breathing. He climbed into an ambulance, passed out, and then he died too. He was buried in the same grave as his father. 42-year-old Joe Lewinger was a basketball coach, assistant principal, father of three, and a husband who left love letters in his wife's lunchbox every day. My husband gave 110% to everything he did. When he was hospitalized, the doctor called his wife to tell her Joe did not have much time. She asked to FaceTime him. I thank you for being the most amazing husband for making me feel cherished and loved every single day. I thanked him. And then I prayed. And then the doctor took the phone. And he said, I'm sorry, but there's no more pulse. And then I played our wedding song for him. And then, um, and then that was it. One million Americans gone. So much loss. I'm so sorry. May their memories be a blessing. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the situation. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 